are live from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth and free speech in the barren desert of the Biden administration. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines and better conversations. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So we're here with our producer, Rod from Philly. Hey, Rod, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Lee. How about yourself? Doing great. So uh, we have a great show today, uh, but I was coming today. I called you afterwards, and I, I talked to Jason after yesterday's show. I think yesterday's show was an exceptional show. Really good. Do you agree? Oh, no, I definitely agree, and I'm, I'm going to take that uh, phrase or uh, definition from Dimitri, the uh, liberal totalitarianism that these uh, these people want, and um, I think that's the best way to summarize everything we've been going through. Yeah, and that's, you know, another thought that I had was that I'd like to hear people on the right criticize the people they don't like more as liberals and less as the left because there is a distinction there the, these liberals are neoliberals essentially neocons and they're not necessarily along left right lines I, I think that gets confusing I think those terms are very confused and what what is a person on the right by the way not that they will listen to me but I would advise people on the left to stop referring to the right as the right because or the far right i say if you want to call nazis far right that's okay but then don't call it trump or roger taylor green or elon musk a far right person you see what i'm saying yeah no it doesn't that term doesn't uh it doesn't go with what, what you're trying to describe so let's What's talk about, about today's show. Put together another great show for us, Rod. Minel Chan in the first hour, and then Daniel Zar in the second hour. And two great guests, and we're going to have great conversations with them about the issues of the day here on The Backstory. Now, one thing, Rod, I haven't talked to you about this before. There are many ways you can pay attention to the coverage of the war. There's the political aspect, there's the economic aspect, but there's also the military aspect. And we've had guests on, like Scott Ritter, who really knows this stuff, and people like Mark Sloboda and Mark Frost also were in the military, and they understand that military stuff more than most civilians like me. I never in the military. And, uh, they understand the military aspect. Let me ask you, Rod, how much do you follow, like what battle's going on or what town they're fighting over any given day? The military aspects, the tactical, because you know what I mean. There's some people who follow this stuff closely, right? Are you one of them, Rod? 
Um, not necessarily, but if I want specifics, then I'll then I'll hone in on specifics because obviously, like you said, there's different battles going on in different regions, and um, you know, I, I get it through like Telegram. I see on different channels on Telegram, you'll get very deep specifics of what's going on and what battles are, are you know being fought or stalemate or being won. And then if you look at the media, they're just giving you just straight nonsense, you know, uh, baby talk, you know, t toddlers, <laughs> toddler speak. That's what, because I'm trying to figure out the big picture. I want to know, is Russia winning or losing, broadly? And in light of the vote we had last night, 40-something million billion, how how much was it? I've seen 47, but I've seen 40. 40 yeah. What's 7 billion between friends? But billions of dollars voted for by the U.S. Congress to go down the toilet in Ukraine because no one has explained to me, no one even argued this is going to turn the tide for Ukraine. Let's pretend you liked Ukraine and want Ukraine to win. There's, it's not clear how this money is going to do that. Did you see anyone explain how this is going to turn the tide for Ukraine? No, no, but you did mention um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I saw she gave uh, her speech in front of Congress of why we shouldn't be giving Ukraine. You know, we keep putting America last, and now we're putting Ukraine first. And um, that's the title of our uh, today's show, and uh, it keeps growing in the headlines. Uh, America is facing a baby formula shortage, and now Canada, so all of North America is facing a uh, baby formula shortage while we're giving money to Ukraine. And let me point out, this came up yesterday with Dimitri, because I'll put it like this. If Russia was facing a baby reformer crisis, and if there were empty shelves, the media would be talking about that every time, every day. They'd be showing crying Russian babies in the B-roll. Do you agree with me? They would make a big deal of that, and they would say it's an indication of the collapse of the Russian economy, and they would show empty shelves with no baby formula on them. Do you agree that if Russia were facing the same crisis that the United States is facing, it would be seen as a sign of economic collapse? The end is nigh. Do you agree, Rod? Oh, yeah, 100%. We, uh, honestly, I think we're uh, some of the elite society here in America would probably even make fun of it. But I, you know, I know you're apparently you have a, a lot of kids, and uh, I know you when you hear little infants crying, it reminds you when you had to go through that. And uh, just imagine hearing a, a, a crying child for hunger for days, hours, or you know, it's just it's just craziness that we're facing this, and we have no resolution coming in, in the near future. No, I don't think it means I, I'm not gonna do the same hype the media would do against Russia should a similar crisis exist. But I will say. I don't think it's good, obviously. Obviously, it's bad, but it does not mean the end of the American economy, right? It's not doomsday, but it is bad. And Marjorie Taylor Greene did point that out. And it is bad, and it is embarrassing, and it's weird. Also, I mean, right? A baby formula shortage is a little weird. 
you know, Lee, uh, you know, as I bring up every once in a while, I was an EMT for six and a half years. And one of the worst things I had to deal with was uh, uh, pediatric patients. And, you know, I had a one patient where um, I forget what the uh, chronic ailment they failed, but pretty much their arms and legs couldn't move. So they were in chronic pain. And I had to transport them like for 45 minutes. So I was in the back of the ambulance with a crying baby because their arms and legs are pretty much in a broken state. And that's the pain she had to live with. So just imagine that, you know, not that bad, but it's just as far as hunger wise, a baby crying, little infant babies crying of hunger. It's just it's it's hard to hear. It's really hard to hear. And I never dealt with that in my marriage because I will say. My wife didn't use formula. She has breasts and she knows how to use them. She she was a fierce advocate of breastfeeding. Well, Lee. Over here in America, uh, they uh, they push the formula on mothers. They kind of, you know, in certain regions of America, they they discourage breastfeeding and they push the formula. So this is this is where the uh, the health system has put us in this state now. Exactly right, and that's one of the reasons my wife uh, didn't like formula because she had had a son before we got together. And she had formula pushed on her. So when we had kids, you know, 22 years ago or something like that, when we had kids, she was committed to not being pushed into formula feeding. And she's a fierce advocate of breastfeeding. Breast is best, is what breastfeeding advocates say. And it was the same reason we were homeschoolers, you know, 25 years ago. And for our kids, in fact, our son Jack, uh, who's a producer of Radio Sputnik, never has been to public school, ever. He was exclusively homeschooled. And we and we weren't right-wing nutcases. I was a Democrat at the time. And I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to homeschool. But later, Democrats pointed out to me, how bad it was, they didn't like it. But what I'm wondering is, will this crisis of baby formula cause a revolution the same way the pandemic? You know, it's a lot more people homeschool now, Rod. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was a. It's been a big shift. Uh, it's something that the media they actually po- uh, point their nose down on people who are homeschooling. Uh, I've seen in uh, Philadelphia when, when it's brought up that they, you know, kind of look down on it. So, yeah. Right. And, and I'm, and I'm hoping what might happen here is the baby formula crisis may wake millions, millions of women who want, who have been pushed into formula, rethink that and become Proven breastfeeders, because I think there's a number of nutritional benefits, and there's also a closeness benefit, right? And I think it makes people, and, and people can do whatever they want, but women I know who breastfeed and who weren't pushed into formula feeding, one of the reasons they like to do formula feeding, I think, is because women have been pushed, I'll say, if, you, if you're a woman and you want to work, great, do your thing. But a lot of women have been pushed into the marketplace by either 
you need two incomes now to survive, or by this feminist idea that somehow you're less of a woman, and you've seen this, Rod, and you know what I'm talking about. Somehow you're less of a woman if you stay at home and raise the kids than if you're in the workplace, right? So formula feeding allows you to feed the kids without you being involved. And it makes it easier for working mothers to get involved in that. But uh, my it's, all, wife, it's also it's also yeah. pushed on them. It's also pushed on them to get back to uh, you know their their lifestyle. If you like going out drinking and going out and having fun, you know, smoking cigarettes or smoking other stuff, you know, that's also uh, one of the things that they push on. Because if you're breastfeeding, you know, your child's getting everything you're, you know, intaking. So that's also another the lifestyle the lifestyle thing they push on them. No, and and I'll, I will say this too. You you make a good point there because my wife, when we met, this is the second wife a long time ago. She was a smoker. At the beginning, she was a smoker. As soon as she became pregnant, she quit. And you know how hard smoking is to quit. A lot of people have difficulty quitting smoking. Boom, she didn't look back. Once she started having kids in her marriage, she never smoked again. And I think it's just a sense of, I'm not, why do I want to do this thing, weird thing now? And she didn't want to do it. But formula feeding, and let me point out something. Formula costs money. Breast milk is free, right? So there's no profit margin in it. And the other thing we'll find out about this, she was also an advocate, my wife, of cloth diapering. And, and, she, and she also wore a baby in a sling. And she felt, felt that was good. A lot of people stick the baby in a stroller. She was a sling wearing. So I, I'm seeing a lot of things that I've been doing as a family. I wasn't really doing it. I was observing. But I'm not like Pete and Boojig. I did no breastfeeding on my own, Rod. But real breastfeeding <laughs> and homeschooling could be making, it's a weird a benefit of some of these globalist crises, making people rethink their parenting choices that weren't really their choices. They were forced on their throat by society. 202-521-1320. Who do we... Let's go to Tarif. Tarif, what's on your mind? Thank you all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free joining science. I have three quick comments. My first comment, um, today, Levels, spokesman, spokesman, spokesperson for Russia, said that um, after this special operation is over, completed, it would basically force the Western um, countries to stop what they unipolitical um, push to to get people to basically um, with this unipolar world, they're gonna stop them from pushing a unipolar world on the rest of the world, you know. And my my second comment is more and more speculation. I'm reading articles and tweets coming out saying that it seems like Poland is getting ready to go in Western Ukraine to supply more and more weapons to. Um, 
the Ukraine, the Ukrainian regime. You know, I'm seeing more and more trees popping up like that. And my last comment, out the, uh, this is from the Russian MOD and TUS, the TUS news agency. They have new information on the Pentagon inhumane experiments on Ukraine citizens in the Sestriaxic wards, like Hospital Number One in the Sturlich Village, Kukov region. But it was experimenting on in patients from the ages of 60 to 40 to 60 years old. Um, the U.S. was involved with it, with other nationals. They have one person by the name of Linda Opato that's in the article. And um, she was, like, taking part in the experiments. Um, January this year, they, they evacuated her and other nationals in experimental equipment with drugs to western Ukraine. They had me got them out of there because they probably can't buy that Russia was going to go into eastern Ukraine. So um, I'm going to see how this play out. I'm going to see if they're going to probably put a arrest warrant for her or act want to uh, ask a question which the U.S. and NATO not going to turn over. You know, we, we're going to... Like, this is a start. Now they come out with names now with these um, experiments. So we're going to see how far this is going to go. Can't wait till June come around so we can find out what's going on. Thank y'all for taking my call. Great call as usual, Sharif. Thanks for the call. Now, back to what I was saying earlier about military tactics. And I typically don't follow them. I don't need to know any given day what battle's going on. But if you see this guy, Jacob Drazen, who's doing video reports through the Duran on YouTube, have you seen him? Yeah, I have seen him. Yeah, I know you're talking about. Yeah, Jacob Drazen, I think he does a very good job of doing these reports. He obviously knows the military stuff and explains it in a way I think is very clear. What do you think of Jacob Drazen from the Drazen report? Oh, yeah, like you just said, he explains it very, very adequately about the, what's happening militarily to people like us who are just civilians and it gives us a better picture of what's going on. And like I said, it just takes whatever you hear in the media, especially here, CNN, MSNBC, BBC, and it's just it's just like, you know, it's first grader to college education type, you know what I mean, to compare and contrast in what you're hearing. No, and, and I, I think he does a good job, and he doesn't seem biased to me. He seems to be presenting his information very fairly and factually. And I noticed on NPR, the lead story, and on DW, Deutsche Welle News in Germany, is that, uh, but it's all it's all over, around the news, ABC, whoever, that Ukraine is saying they're making gains. They're pushing Russian troops back. Have you seen that? Ukraine in these villages. Yeah, it seems it seems like it's a three day cycle thing. Like every three days, they they're making these gains, these gains. But then you know, as once it's fully taken over, they say, oh, you know, Russia's taken over this territory, and they never say anything about the gains that they were talking about for days. Well, one of the things, and I don't want to sound like I know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to use a military term: faint, not faint like fall over with the vapors. No, faint, F E. I and T. That's where you pull back, but not really. You fake a pullback. You don't fake it. You really pull back. But then it's a way, it's it's no way of retreating. 
it's a way of backing off for a second before you come in for another attack. You know what I'm talking about, Rod? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, it, it's a fight. It's a fight term, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's boxing. It's faint. It's you, you, you slip to the left, but you're really going to come back with the left hook. It makes you look like you're going to use a right punch. So yeah, it's exactly. And and Russia has done that. I've noticed in the discussions of the military tactics, Russia's done this throughout the war. Russia, and, and it's a standard military technique. They didn't invent it, but they're using that technique a lot. So in the first part of the feint, like you say, when you slip back, the other side can say, oh, hey, they're retreating. Right? Looks like they're running away. But then the left hook comes and gets them, and they go, oops, I guess we're wrong. So in these villages, it seems like Russia's pulling back temporarily, but there's nothing. Here's the fundamental truth. Russia has such a superiority in terms of weapons, in terms of supply lines, and in terms of troops and trained top-level troops that Russia's got an insurmountable advantage over Ukraine. Is that your take, Rod? I would compare this to the, you know, for people who, you know, who just watch movies and stuff to like 300. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, <laughs> that's what it looks like. They're, they're going to keep fighting and they're going to, they're going to make it, they're going to make it, but it's, it's only 300 troops. Like, what do you expect? You know, they're against the whole army. So, you know, like we heard Dimitri say, they're just using one tenth of their military power. So if they really wanted to ratchet it up, they could have this, you know, cleaned up by the end of the week. But they're like, a, they've been trying to be very precise and have at least loss in a civilian life lost as possible. And also, uh, one thing that comes up here is that there is a propaganda campaign in Ukraine and the U.S. And here's why the U.S. has to engage in propaganda campaign, aside from obvious reasons. When you vote to spend billions of dollars in a country, people can't hear in the news that the country is losing and it's hopeless. Does that make sense, Rod? People want to know, well, this is going to help the country. It's going to help Ukraine. They'll build, take on the Ruskies. They want to think that. So they need a strong U.S. propaganda campaign to say Ukraine's got a chance. They're going to turn this thing around, even though there's no chance. And part of the, the propaganda, you know, I saw it today. I heard this. And this is such a joke. We've talked to a lot about Mariupol, and we've had guests on reporters who've been in Mariupol. And I've talked about Patrick Lancaster's reports on YouTube from Mariupol. What I heard them say today is that the Ukrainian troops are defending a steel plant in Mariupol. No, they're not. You see, Rod, do you think... First off, no one cares about this plant. Why would they defend it? What the... Yeah, that's a, stu that's a stupid statement to say, yeah. Right, because the fact is, the Ukrainians are hiding. 
right? They're hiding in the catacombs because it's nuclear proof and it's a very tough place to attack. They're, they're hiding out. They're not defending a steel plant, right? I mean, what, what did they provide any context why the steel plant is so important? I mean, that sounds so stupid. They're defending a steel plant instead of other people. <laughs> right. But they make it sound like, well, that's reasonable because if people, the problem with propaganda is the truth gets out. So people might catch a glimpse of a headline that talks about the Russians' forces are a steel plant. And they might think to themselves, well, why are they there? And if they don't pay attention, this explains it for people who aren't paying attention. But we're telling you the truth. Russia has won in Mariupol, and the civilians don't want the Ukrainian forces there. The Ukrainian forces are against the civilian population and has been using them as human shields, right? And now they're hiding out because Russia has made the troops be in this one small area, and so they're ducking. They're not defending this steel plant, which Russia has said, apparently, isn't going to be reopened. Mariupol is effectively Russian territory now. Right? We, we talked to Dmitry Babich about that yesterday. But the propaganda campaign has to go on because if people are seeing their representatives vote to send billions of dollars to Ukraine— they don't want to hear that it's also going to have no effect and it's going to have no effect. Do you think do you think the 40 billion dollars is going to do anything to help Ukraine ultimately? Absolutely not. None of the, none of the other packages of aid and money have helped them yet. So why is this 40 billion going to help them? You know, I mean, we we already know that the, their ammunitions are getting attacked. The one that they're shipping uh, on trains is getting attacked by Russia. So they're not even getting delivered these weapons, and they don't even know how to use them. We don't know. We also don't know where they're ending up. So all of this stuff is, like you said, it's propaganda. And it's just it's just craziness, honestly, to me. Um, Forty billion to Ukraine while we're having uh, gas all time high, baby formula sh shortage, uh, all this stuff happening, and we're worried about Ukraine still. And also that vote last night, all of the voting, the Democrats, every single Democrat voted for that money, including the squad. Did you notice that? Every single Democrat voted for that. This is a war party. The Democrats are the war party in the United States. That's not always been the case. They've been the semi-war party in some places, but the Republicans have typically been the pro-war party. 57 Republicans voted against that money. Did you see that? Yeah, I did see that. And uh, now it's up to the senators, which, you know, the Republican senators, because I believe all the Democrats senators are going to vote yes. You know, maybe obviously maybe Rand Paul is going to be one of them, but who else is going to join in and say, say no? Right. And, and I hope some people will join Rand Paul, but it's significant that the Democrats are the war party. They're an absolute lockstep, and the squad is part of that. If you think 
they're your friends. Anybody in the anti-war left, if you put any hope in the squad, Ilan Omar, AOC, there's no hope. They're part of the war party. And that's officially the Democrat Party. The Republicans, it's split. Way too many in in Syrian South Dakota, we have one representative, Dusty Johnson. He voted for the money. And I think people in South Dakota need to make him explain his vote. What did you think we were accomplishing? That's what the question I have. What do you think you're helping? But we'll talk to the Inazar about that and about other issues related to the war and about the embarrassing coordination between the U.S. and Great Britain and their own embarrassing foreign minister, Liz Truss. We'll talk about that with Daniel Zarr right after the break. Manila, Manila, Manila. Oh, oops, 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 oops. Forgive me. Say, I had it in my head. Forgive me. We'll talk to Manila Chan about the vote last night and about the abortion issue. I'm curious what Manila thinks about that. Coming up on The Backstory. Back on the backstory, 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland on the radio, despite Joy Reid's prediction and CNN's best efforts. We're still on the radio, so people are getting the truth as they drive around. Although, apparently, some reception problems that we don't know. I wouldn't put it past the government to try to block our signal. And I want to apologize if I'm announcing people wrong. As I pointed out, since my stroke, one of the things that was affected was my eyesight. And my eyesight was never good on a good day. And it's much worse now. And I can't look at my notes, written notes. So what I do before, when I'm doing show prep, what I do is I try to memorize the order of the show. And I I repeat... I don't know how you try to remember stuff, but I'm one of those people who repeats it over and over to themselves and tries to program my brain. And so if I get in my head that we have one guest on in the first hour, I program myself to think that. And so Daniel Zarr is coming up next hour, but this hour we're pleased to be joined by our good friend and co-host of Fault Lines, Manila Chan. Hey, Manila, how you doing? Hey, Yaleed. A lot of stuff going on. I thought for a second you bumped me for Dan Lazar. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. Because we love having you on Manila. And it just, it just, Rod corrected me in the intro because I had it wrong. I, I memorized it wrong for some reason. And then I can't get it out of my head. I was convinced. But we're, we're pleased to have you with us. How are you doing, Manil? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting to life at Sputnik. 
um, you know, after you, uh, this used to be your show, Fault Lines, as I recall. So it's a lot of big shoes to fill, but I'm having a good time. Well, also, I will say, and and you know I'm right, it's weird coming in first thing in the morning. When you come in to do Fault Lines, and I know I hosted it for a few years, when you come in to do Fault Lines, there's nobody in the office, correct? Totally crickets. No, but there's hardly anybody on the street. And I used to say that when some reporters, when I first, first hired, they were like, it's in this Russian propaganda. And I was like, there's no meeting in the morning where Putin calls in and says, hey, here's what I want you to cover. In fact, I told people, I said, come in to work with me. You know the truth, man, because you, you always co-host the show. You not only set the agenda for the show, but there's no one there who could set the agenda, right? I mean, it's the people <laughs> who work on the show. You, Jamal, yeah. and the engineer. Yeah, it's, it's me, Jamal, uh, a couple of producers, and that's it. It's just the people that have to push buttons, get guests. Um, now, I don't know about you, Lee, but I mean, me and Vladimir talk on the phone all the time, just not about the show. Just just to be clear, we're just besties. No, he's great. I, I, haven't, I haven't talked to him <laughs> off air. But I would, I would, because we had him on for a great appearance yesterday. I kept him on for 15 minutes. He stayed on for 45 minutes. We did a 45-minute interview about life in Russia and everything else. And I'll, I'll repeat the point I made, because you obviously covered a variety of issues, and you did in your work at RT. But I've said, I think the labels of left and right. Here's how screwed up they are. I think if Vladimir Putin were an American politician, because he is pro-family and because he, he's encouraged people to have children in Russia, and because he has spoken out against the woke left, and he would be called a far-right-wing radical if he were an American politician. Do you agree with me? Because, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And he's, Absolutely. He's, and he's not a far right-wing radical. And the people they call right-wing radicals are not right-wing radicals either. Yeah, I think what you th if, you put it, if you put it in the scope of the rest of the world, I mean, barring what America thinks is far right. And, and when I say what America thinks of it, it's just the very loud um, one half of the country at best. It's maybe a very, very loud one half. Um, but I would venture to say there are more conservative people, the silent majority across the U.S. than there actually are, at least by the numbers. Um, they may not necessarily all go out and vote, but I do think more Americans are actually leaning towards the conservative side. Well, and, but even what that means, if you took someone from 1985 and put them in a cryogenic chamber and froze them, right? And you put them in a, a weird sci-fi sci coma and you woke them up today and you said, 
I want to describe a political party. They're uniformly pro-war, and they're in favor of censorship. The person from 1985 would say, well, it's a Republican. It has to yes. be. Absolutely. But I think it's not. It's unrecognizable. It's the, the, the parties are completely unrecognizable the way you and I might remember this from, you know, the Bush one and, and even Bush two. Um, even during the Clinton era, the parties are completely unrecognizable, barring probably one person in the Senate, and that would be Joe Manchin, who is the only Democrat senator who sided just now with the breaking news. Um, the filibuster came through in the Senate uh, to vote no on codifying Roe. It was a 49 to 51 vote. All the Republicans went no, plus one Joe Manchin. So Joe Manchin is probably the only person still um, holding a seat that would remotely look like anybody you saw in the 80s or 90s. And he's a moderate Democrat, you know, and he's probably more emblematic of what the Democrat Party used to look like in the 80s, in the 90s, who were, you know, pro-union, anti-war, there for the working man, right? This is the party for the, the worker, the everyday person. And we have seen, I mean, I don't know if it's an upside down world problem, uh, but we have seen a complete landslide shift in how the parties approach various topics. Because like you said, to your point, um, we are seeing the squad who are supposed to be the far left progressives within the Democrat Party. Um, they're supposed to be the ones, you know, pushing for unions, pushing for this, pushing for that freedom of speech, freedom but that's not what we're seeing at all. We're actually seeing them push for more censorship. Um, they applauded when RT America was shut down. Uh, I'm sure the, the people that all go on, they all go on Joy Reid's show. And Joy Reid was certainly, you know, championing uh, the shutdown of RT America and for Sputnik. So I don't know what happened to that party, but it certainly happened during my lifetime. I've watched it change. And Joe Manchin is probably the one person on Capitol Hill that remotely looks like what you would think a Democrat was. And we've had callers on the show. I'm thinking of Ingrid in D.C., who's called in to talk about, because she's an anti-war activist. The grassroots, the anti-war movement was on the side against Russia. The anti-war movement, I've said this before, I think back in the Iraq invasion, there was an active anti-war movement that was really against war, against mm -hmm. the military action. Now the anti-war movement has been taken over and they're pro-Democrat. They're Democrats first and anti-war second. And I think the squad voting for this money and, and what's ironic is someone who's called a far right-wing radical, a right-wing extremist, Marjorie Taylor Greene, was out <laughs> talking about what's going on with the baby formula crisis. Yes. And she was saying, why are we spending money on Ukraine that's not going to help the war anyway? But she was saying, why are we doing that when there's a baby formula crisis? I, I, again, I would have thought talking about a baby formula crisis would have been the Democrats. That seems like a Democrat issue, 
not a hardcore Republican issue. But she's the only one who's raising that point. What do you think of the baby food crisis? What's your take on them at all? Lee, I don't know if you heard, but after uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene stepped off the podium, um, uh, Congressman Raskin came up after her, and he he used the baby formula statement from uh, Greene to pivot and say, you know what, about the only formula uh, that matters here is how to help Ukraine win or something to that effect. I mean, so he used the language and totally, completely dismissed that thousands of new moms out there, and I'm not that far removed from my own son being on a specific specialty formula because different babies have different needs, different women have different needs. They have different reasons for why they need this formula. And it seems like the Biden administration, who's supposed to be the Democrat Party, who's supposed to care about, you know, uh, needy children, children in need. This is what's more needy than an infant who cannot be fed. And to have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is usually somebody that's even fringy for the farthest right of the of anyone in Congress. For her to be the only person to bring that up, I'm not sure if Marjorie is a mom or not, but surely I'm sure she's an aunt or a sister or a cousin. I'm sure this, some people in her district have to have been affected by this because why was she the only one that addressed this? And to have Congressman Raskin use that language to pivot from that to go straight to, hey, let's shovel money to Ukraine is appalling and voters throughout this country should be angry that we are the wealthiest country in the world and instead of feeding innocent babies here in america we are shoveling money to the war machine in ukraine that is futile this is a futile fight from the get-go it's been futile to begin with we are pouring good money after bad there is no point in that when this country is seeing crisis after crisis we've gone from covid to now severe inflation, the gas crisis, the literally kitchen table crisis, and now we're all the way down to little babies and baby formula? I mean, come on. The Democrats, the Biden administration, they have to get on this. They have, clearly they have the money to move in the direction that they see fit, and what they see fit appears to be feeding the war machine. And that is unacceptable. As, as a kid that grew up in the 80s in a Democrat working class community, to me, this is completely appalling and unacceptable. And there should be people on the streets right now, angry, not necessarily at just about Roe. They should be angry that Joe Biden is ignoring their needs. Right. And, and as I pointed out, the only people who voted against this were Republicans, 57 Republicans, and that's not nearly enough. But that's a significant number of Republicans. And I think you were saying before you think uh, the country is, how did you define it? A lot of people identify as center, right? I would say so. I think most of America is slightly more conservative. They're not really into this woke culture, Lee. It's just the reason people think woke culture is the way to go is because the minority that is the woke culture 
is so loud and so obnoxious and so abrasive and so all over social media that they're constantly in your face. So it seems it would appear as if the woke culture was bigger than it is. But if you go to Main Street anywhere in, you know, the Midwest, let's say, nobody, nobody talks like that. Nobody speaks like that. That's just not the reality on the ground in Main Street, USA, any town, USA. But it's the woke left that controls the media, the woke left that controls social media. Um, so you're inundated with that kind of language, with that kind of culture. But regular people across this country are either very, very moderate. They, you know, they're, they're most Americans, I would say, lean pro-choice. They, and I'm saying this as somebody that's traveled all over the country on campaign trails and just, you know, being a reporter, um, most people in the, in the U.S. are in favor of pro-choice, but with limits, no, you know, not all the way up to the day that the baby can be born, but most Americans are pretty pro-choice. They don't like war. They know they want their streets fixed. They know they want, you know, better schools, books and stuff in the schools. And we don't have that. We don't have anybody that talks about regular kitchen table stuff and is anti-war. And that's where the Democrats used to fall in line, especially the Joe Manchin types. But they've either all died out or they're just not popular because the DNC moves forward people like a Cory Bush, like an AOC. So the Joe Manchins of the world are far and few between. Now, and, and also... You know, you point out the woke culture is is being promoted by the extremist elements, and it's true. But woke, the woke stuff is promoted by two groups. Number one, the radicals, the people with eighteen face piercings, and so on. <laughs> That's one group. But the other group is establishment Democrats. Joe Biden. Is as woke as you can be. Do you agree? No, he's he, out there talking. No, he's asleep. Uh, Lee, Lee, he's not woke. He's asleep. But he's asleep and he's dreaming he's woke. Because he, he <laughs> makes the, the same talking points. Uh, he brings up supporting you know, transgender men competing with women. That's yes. He's in favor. So establishment Democrats have somehow allied with the most radical elements, but it's to take the radical elements and to get them to be pro-war. What do you think, Mel? Isn't that a weird juxtaposition to think these, the woke people that are, you know, saying Black Lives Matter and all of this suddenly don't care about the lives in America. They only care about the primarily white lives that are in Ukraine, um, that if they truly cared about those lives, they wouldn't have gotten behind so vehemently as Nancy Pelosi has pushed for them to continue this war. They keep supporting and, and, and kind of poking uh, the Zelensky regime to continue this war for whatever reason, reason Boris Johnson was just there a couple weeks ago um, before Mother's Day, before Joe Biden got there, and he delivered 
I would say a message from the West. He, I think he had to do Joe Biden's dirty work for him. So Bojo went there and he said the quiet part out loud is that, no, peace is not on the table. You're not going to have a peace negotiation. You're going to continue this war and we're going to support you. To me, the, the party here, Nancy Pelosi's Democrats, their, uh, their woke side, they're all, all of them. All of the Democrats under Nancy Pelosi, I mean, even the Republicans at this point, Lee, they're all following, falling in line with Nancy Pelosi and trying to continue this war instead of saying, let's talk about peace. Let's find an exit ramp. Instead, we're doubling down. We're pushing to have more Ukrainian lives lost as well as some Russian lives. But it doesn't sound like these people care about keeping people alive because they want to continue the war. Now, with this issue about abortion, I, it occurred to me today that a lot of the Democrat talking points on abortion, and I'll name some specific examples, but a lot of Democrat talking points were taken out by the COVID-19 crisis. For instance, it's your body, your choice, or we don't want to get between a woman and their doctor, right? Yeah. That was completely, when it came to COVID, it's no longer your choice. And it's no longer between you and your doctor. It's now a government mandate. Do you think the COVID-19 pandemic and the government response to it blunted a lot of the standard Democrat talking points on abortion? Oh, totally. I think it just goes to show that there is a different agenda that, you know, the my body, my choice, if that's really the case. And I've been harping about that all through COVID is my body, my choice, whether I want to get an abortion or do I want this vaccine? That should be up to me. That should be between me and my doctor. And for me personally, uh, I mean, abortion is not something I personally would do. I, I do. I am one of those uh, pro-choice people that somewhere in the middle pro-choice, not because I think it's a great idea to use that in place of contraception, but for the sheer fact that I don't believe the government should ever have a say in any person's body. The government does not belong in your body. The government does not belong in my uterus. That's for sure. So for the same reason that I would say the vaccine should be up to you, the same reason would apply for this Roe v. Wade argument is it should be up to you. If, if abortion is something you want to do, I mean, this people, women get abortions, and I say women, women get abortions for deeply, deeply personal reasons. And to me, if the Democrats truly, truly cared about women having a real choice, it's not about having to codify Roe. If they cared about truly having a choice, then make it a real choice for women. What about all the working women who don't have paid time off? They don't have health insurance. They don't have. So if they, they think, okay, I get pregnant. Holy crap. I don't have health insurance. It's going to cost a bazillion dollars to see a doctor. I don't know, you know, not a lot of resources where I live. And we're talking about working class women, right? They don't have paid time off. They 
stand to lose their job. Okay. We don't have paid maternity leave in this country. So if a woman goes without work for a month, two months, three months, while, because they, they, let's say they choose to keep the child, then what happens in those one month, two months, three months, they don't have a paycheck. They can stand to be homeless. So oftentimes working women have to, they have to choose the, the horrors of having to abort, even though they don't want to, because they don't want to be homeless. So if Democrats actually cared and they were the party of the working people, they should work to get paid maternity leave at the federal level approved for women. Spend some of that money towards paid maternity leave and programs to help working women, and you will see abortion rates drop. But instead, they use Roe v. Wade as this political football, and they think this is what's going to solve it come November. But come November, when nobody can afford to put gas in their car or feed their families, they're not going to care about Roe at that point. So to me, if the Democrats really want to show that women have a choice, then actually give women the choice. Give women the choice of being able to keep the baby. How about that? Now, Manolo, that reminds me of a headline I saw today, and this will sound like I'm making up, and I'm not. I'm not making this up. Did you see the headline about Spain? They're granting menstrual leave. <laughs> it sounds like I'm making amazing. it up. <laughs> right. And I don't know details and, frankly, don't want to. But uh, <laughs> they, they're granting menstrual leave. That's serious leave. And I'm depending on the mood of the people, some men might agree with that. Yeah, let them leave. Okay, come back <laughs> when you have some chocolate. You know what I'm saying? But did you see that headline? I did not see that headline. And you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those women that would need that, but that's, that's great. I mean, I guess some, some women... I suppose if you go to your doctor, some women have really, really difficult cycles. Um, I don't. I would say most women don't, but there are some women that do. And I suppose if you, you know, took that up with your doctor and, and have a note, I guess that would make sense. Because I don't, I don't know how Spain would be able to, I mean, even in the private sector, how they would afford to let a woman stay home one week a month. But, hey. If they can do it, good on them. But yeah, that seems a little, a little, a little much for me, even for me as well, a menstruating woman. And 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 thanks for that, Manuel. But uh, that's <laughs> and I note with some, you can take this however you want. But I just note that Spain is the home of sangria, the drink. You know what I'm saying? And they yeah. seem to. Be into blood. You know the name sangria. It's sangre. It's blood. It comes from the word for blood. Was that the Latin term for blood? I didn't know that. It's Spanish, yeah. But, but uh, now, what do you think of the fact that the Democrats have basically signed off on protests outside Supreme Court Justice's house? Because I think whatever you think about the abortion issue intimidating Supreme Court justices. And I've heard a lot of Democrats say the Supreme Court needs to be abolished. 
What do you think of this development about justices being intimidated outside the House? Everything about that, Lee, is a no, no, no. First of all, their homes were doxxed. I'm against doxing. That is, is a very dangerous thing. Secondly, there's a U.S. federal code that that stops that says you cannot go intimidate um, members of the court, especially not SCOTUS, because you're this is like mob rule. It's like a mob, try, the mob trying to intimidate uh, a witness, you know, to put John Gotti away, let's say. Right. And Manila, there we're are laws around we're- we're up against the hard break at the top of the hour. Manel Chen, great conversation. You can hear on fault lines every morning here on Radio Sputnik. When we come back, we'll be talking about more of the issues of the day here on The Backstory. live from the empire of lies in the oasis of truth telling and free speech in the air desert that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan and this is The Backstory. Great conversation with Manila Chan and I'm very happy to see she's on ball lines and check her out with Jamal Thomas. And let me apologize to Jamal I have trouble pronouncing his name, and the stroke didn't help it. And I know how his name's actually pronounced. Jim Marl. I know that, but I can't say it. So I apologize to him. We love having Jamal on as well. He talks about a lot of UFO stuff, and he's high energy. And I'm sure he's having good fun with Manila over there. Every morning on Radio Sputnik, bringing you a variety, variety of opinions every day raised picnic it's why they hate us and i mean that you know one reason i think cnn and joy reed are trying to take out sputnik i think it's a way of a diversity of viewpoints we talked yesterday by any means necessary there's no show that's as radical as by any means necessary on cnn is there no no even Ben Jones, who at one point was a radical socialist, but Ben Jones has been house trained. Do you know what I mean by that? Neutered, I'll yeah, after say. He got kicked out. Yeah, after he got kicked out of the Obama White House. That's right. He's, he's, you know, he he's largely, and, and Ben Jones is one of the more independent people on CNN, but he's not the radical self that he used to be in his youth. And there's no one who's as radical a show as by any means necessary. And if you want to hear what actual radicals think, you can listen to by any means necessary. And I love that. I think the reason they hate, and it's the same reason they hate Joe Rogan, I don't think the issue with Joe Rogan is he takes one position. It's that he allows the freedom to hear a variety of opinions. And that's what they hate. 
Coming in for this hour, Daniel Zarr. I, I finally got that one right. Right, right, Rod? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so Daniel Zarr, and we're going to have a great conversation with Daniel Zarr as we had with Mel Chan in the last hour, and we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. And let me say again, I'm not a Trump hater. I'm not a Trump hater. I do not reflexively hate his guts, and I don't repeat lies about Trump. But to some people, criticizing Trump in any way, and I'm about to, makes me a Trump hater. No, I'm not. I don't lie about him. I didn't say he said there were good people in Charlottesville, referring to Nazis, for instance. I don't lie about him. But you heard the Elon Musk news yesterday, right, Rod? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it was a, that was a headlines everywhere. Yeah, Elon Musk said he would allow Trump back on Twitter. And let me say, and I've hinted at this before, Trump, his spokesman, Devin Nunez, former congressman Devin Nunez, who's the CEO of Truth Social. Do you ever go on Truth Social, Rod? Never, never. Have you tried? No. So I have an account, and it doesn't seem set up well, technically. And... I don't go on there. Devin Nunez came out and said, no, Donald Trump's not going on back on Twitter. Because he said, and Devin Nunez is stupid. Jason Goodman has pointed this out many times. He's not a tech person. Can you think of, imagine you were starting up rodtruth.com, right? Your own social network, the Rod social network. Would you go on Twitter in order to get people to go onto Rod Social? You of see course, what I'm that saying? Would be, that'd be the logical thing to do. That's where the most people are. And I want I want some of those people to come to my platform now. And so Elon Musk said that Trump will be and and the the Elon Musk deal is not finished. And Elon Musk has made it clear. In fact, he makes it seem like it's somewhat in doubt. Have you noticed that? Yeah, no, I, I see that. And there's a lot of uh, lawsuits being or stopping, trying to stop this uh, acquisition as well. So it's still not 100% uh, done deal yet. And and that's weird because people were acting like it was done. But it, apparently it's not a done deal. But he's saying if he was in charge of Twitter, he wouldn't let Donald Trump back. And what Donald Trump should do is go back there's nothing keeping you from being on more than one social network. And what you do is, this is Internet Marketing 101. You cross-promote. Use one platform to promote your own platform. You follow me? Twitter, if, Trump's, if Trump is allowed back on Twitter and chooses not to go back on, he doesn't deserve the nomination. Someone who's refusing to go back. It's also kind of impolite. You, you know what I'm saying? Elon Musk is taking a lot of slings and arrows for his uh, saying he's going to put Trump back on. 
And then for Trump to say, eh, no, I'm not going to go back on. I think it's snotty, aside from being stupid. Do you agree, Rodney? Yeah. Uh, uh, two things real quick. We have uh, David from New York and Brave. And second, I kind of think that this – because I, I actually – I've actually seen Devis Nunes' lawyer versus uh, Jason Goodman. I was actually in that uh, uh, first hearing in uh, Virginia, and I saw it. So, and this, is, this guy was going off crazy. We, I, like, I wish I could have recorded it. You would have seen this. Was like, you would have said, like, this is, this is how does this guy have a law license? But I feel like this is, I guess you could say, the deep state, because uh, I feel like Devin Nunes is hurting Trump. You know, so, I mean, he's just giving him a thousand cuts. You know what I mean? Every time he tries to do something uh, good, like let's say uh, Elon Musk allowing him back on Twitter, that would be a good thing. And now we have him as like a handler saying, no, 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 he's not, he's not coming on. What should have statement come? This should have come out of the Trump camp. This should have been a statement. I thank Elon Musk for saying he would have me back on Twitter. And I will take him up on his offer. And I hope his acquisition with Twitter for the purposes of free speech goes well. Something like that. But Trump couldn't do that. And I, I'll, the word I'll use is it seems ungrateful. And not that he has to be grateful, bowing and scraping, but he has to acknowledge it's not been an easy decision for Elon Musk. If you've seen how much Elon Musk is getting attacked for the decision that he would put Trump back on. 24-7 now. Right. And then for him to be so ungrateful about it, it's very much the problem with Trump. He's not pro-free speech. He's pro-Trump. And he always has been. And it shows he's a bad hirer. The decision to have Devin Nunez, he's unqualified and shows it with his decision. So that's what I think about that. 202-521-1320. Who's first, Command Central? David from New York. Thank you. David from New York. You're on fall. You're on the backstory. Say that confused me because Manila's on fall lines. But go ahead, David. Uh, yes, I have an opinion on the, the uh, Supreme Court Roe versus Wade draft decision. Uh, here, here's my view: If the Supreme Court chooses to adjudicate on an issue where there's no relevant federal law or applicable constitutional basis, the the, the adjudication would have to be based only on morality. But I'm not sure they should adjudicate based on morality. And, but, and if they do, it should be based not on the morality of Twitter years ago, which is, I think, one of the things that was quoted by one of the justices, but rather on the morality of today's society. And in that case, it should be based on an overwhelming consensus of the population, not 51-49 or even 60-40, but more like 90-10. That's my comment. Well, thanks for the comment. I, I got to say, I think they're basing us on law. A lot of people have said, you know, one of the groups that has been going out and protesting outside the houses. Have you heard about this group? Ruth sent me, Rod. Have you heard of that group? I haven't heard of that group, but I did see Jed Saki was asked about it, and she said that, you know, she was okay with it, and the White House is okay with it. And the group, do you know why they're called Ruth sent me? I'm, I'm guessing because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's exactly right, except Ruth Gator Ginsburg said that she thought Roe she understands the problems with it legally. 
it was a bad legal decision. And they're calling themselves Ruth sent me. Well, no. I, I think this is a legal decision. And a lot of people have said over the years, and a lot of people who are pro-choice have said, this is a bad legal decision. You've heard that from many people, right, Rod? Yeah, no, I've heard, I've heard that throughout the years, you know, since I can, since I can remember that it's been, a bit, you know, it's controversial, but I've been hearing the legal aspect of it uh, and the the question of it. So, yeah. And and what what is freaking people out is that, again, I'll say it again, the Democrats hate choice. If the people of South Dakota don't want abortion here, as morality of this area is different than morality of, let's say, California, which I'm pretty sure it is. I'm fine with citizens. And I'll put it like this. No one's done this. And I kind of hope someone does. I wonder what's the furthest anyone would have to travel to get an abortion. In other words, if, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, because that's not a done deal. But if it is overturned, and it goes back to the states. What state would have the furthest distance from a legal abortion state? Because we've said New York and California, it's going to remain, abortion will remain legal there. But what's the furthest someone would have to travel? My guess is three states. That's, that's my guess. Have you heard anything about that, Rod? Um, no, I mean, by just by looking at the map, you know, and just like if you're in the middle of, let's say if you're in the middle of Texas and let's say they, Texas bans abortion and the closest state to you is Oklahoma and they ban abortion. So I'd say maybe one. So if you're in one state that's a banned, you might be close to another one. So you'd have to go two states over possibly the, the longest you have to go. Yeah. I, and I don't think it's going to be too far, too far. In other words, within the realm of possibility. But 202-521-1320. Hey, Brave. How you doing? Doing pretty good. How you doing, Lee? I, um, I'm, you, you I'm okay. Better. I'm glad to see you. you're on the mend. Uh, I just wanted to uh, agree with uh, what Manila was saying earlier uh, in, the last, in the last hour um, of where a lot of Americans would appear to be in the normal world, right? Not the crazy Twitter world or uh, Washington. Um, I feel like um, the whole woke thing is, is a... Is a is a is a huge uh, bit of subversion, uh, and it's in the same sense of of how we, we've come to um, allow ourselves to be controlled by the confines of you know what's right, what's left, and things of that nature. But I, I really feel like the whole woke movement thing is a matter of subversion, and and it, and it really reveals itself in that you see uh, so many different groups are now joining together, whereas so many groups within that whole work, uh, woke uh, atmosphere are just kind of all over the place. The hypocrisy and the contradictions are just kind of slamming up against each other because um, at the end of the day, I, I don't really uh, believe that they, they believe in any of the stuff they're talking about. They're just following what's um, virtuous, what appears to be virtuous at that time, virtue signaling. And um, I, I don't know, I, I, would, I would hope that at some point 
uh, we will be able to wake up uh, from this, <laughs> wake up from the wokeness. It just doesn't seem like it. Um, also, Robert Barnes was on the uh, Duran uh, Duran show, and he um, made a great point. The point that Manila Chan kind of went into towards the end of the hour, talking about there's already there's a law in the books that makes um, that an actual an illegal act. Because I, I think I think he referred to it as um, obstructing justice, because that's that's actually um, uh, influencing influencing the, the, the judge in, in, on on a case on a legal matter. Um, I don't even think it's, I don't even think it's influence. I think it's more so. Um, I guess you could say bullying or something like that. But uh, apparently, he was saying that that's 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 illegal, and that those people would actually should actually be facing charges in the same sense as those who um, who supposedly um, took part in in January 6th. Even though I think the January 6th thing is full of crap as far as what they're being charged for and how they want to look at it. That's all I have. No, I think it's a good point, but brave. And you're pointing out the hypocrisy of January 6th. And they called an insurrection, clearly not an insurrection, because it would have had no legal effect whatsoever. But they like to let the Biden administration, and Barnes was right, the law on intimidating judges is very clear. Very clear. And by the Biden administration not enforcing that law and saying, well, I'm okay with it, Jen Zaki said. That is sending a message to all Americans that protests for position that Democrats want, anything goes. And a lot of us saw this when you had Black Lives Matter protesting the Trump administration outside the White House. And they were violent with Capitol Police. And once again, that was supported by the establishment. I think, I'll put it like this. I hope there's some soul searching by anyone out there who still believes in the woke ideology. Start to figure out, ask yourself why mainstream Democrats support you on those issues. And I think it's obvious. They want to get young voters. Right? Am I Rod, do you agree with response? Right? Wait, wait, Brave, are you still there? Yeah, I wanted to just say something right quick if I could. Yeah. I do want to clarify, um, while, while it may be illegal or why it may be um, uh, frowned upon, I, I am all for uh, I am all for protesting outside of the House of of the of the judge, I'm I'm all for protesting outside of the White House. I'm all for the January sixth stuff if it were in fact real. Because I just I personally have, as a as a as a veteran, as a prior service member who's, who's been in war zones and saw that we, and my my first deployment was to Kosovo, and I remember going to Kosovo and not knowing why I was there and looking around like wow man this this is crazy people look, live like crap this is this is trash and then finding out that. We were responsible for a lot of the destruction there, right? And just many things I learned after that. And then, of course, just every day, just going over all of the information that's available now that I actually know a lot more and I, I know how to, to um, 
to, to, to judge these things. I have no respect or appreciation for the elites and, and those who we consider in power. And I have no belief that they have our, uh, our, our best of interest in their hearts or, or in their minds or on the conscious, um, which is obviously apparent, apparent with what they're doing with all the money they're sending out to, to this bullcrap war in, in uh, Ukraine, but not even concerned about what's going on here in the States. So I'm, I'm for all of it. I'm, I'm here for all of it. And I don't personally believe that any change will come from just voting and hoping that Trump gets back on Twitter. But um, I, I, just want, I just want to make sure I clarify that because I don't, I don't want to come off as, as if I think that, that they're wrong for protesting. I just feel like it's a version. I feel like they're just sucking us in and using us and using our energy to, to further their own agendas. Right. And it, did you see Anna from the Young Turks freak the F out on the show the other day? Did you see that rant? It was all on YouTube. Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks, when she was freaking out, talking about menstrual leave in, in, in Spain, she would apply for it. But did you see Anna Kasparian freaking out, Brave? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, the, the Young Turks is, is such a sad story. I, uh, little known secret uh, by only me, I guess, because it doesn't matter. But I used to have like the biggest like media crush on Anna Kasparian back way back in the day when I loved Tyt. And I, but um, those guys are they're, they're trash, and she is um, she's ridiculous. She's she's ridiculous, and her freakouts are typically ridiculous. I think that Anna Kasparian. Um, I think that her big issue is she didn't get the chance to sell out and go and, and get as large as she would like to. And, and it's apparent because I remember when Tulsi Gabbard would appear on her show on the, or trying to appear on her show when she was running. And she had the most hate for uh, Tulsi. I, I had before anyone I, that I could remember having hate for Tulsi, she was throwing much hate towards her, and I could never figure out why saying she was not a real progressive. And it's funny to see, it's funny to have heard her say those words and now see where TYT is after claiming to be the biggest progressives. Well, Anna Kasparian, if you, if you did not see the freakout that she had, I think the best place, did you watch Jimmy Dore talking about the freakout? I saw, I saw a clip of it. I saw a clip of her actually doing it. Someone else was making fun of it on YouTube. So Jimmy Dore was laughing his ass off during that clip. He thought it was the most hilarious thing because she essentially is now saying what he's been saying for a few years. He's saying he's saying from the left, he doesn't trust the squad and, and hasn't for a while and says that they are part of the Democrat establishment. And Jimmy Dore was laughing his butt off about Anna Kasparian freaking out. And especially the funniest part of that clip to me. If if you, you didn't see it, see it. Because, Rod, you've seen it, right? Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. And we have uh, Eric from Florida on the phone. It's hilarious, yeah, it. right? It's, 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 come on. It's just so over the top. And uh, like you said, uh, Chank, what, like, <laughs> he, was trying to, he was trying to say something, but uh, she just kept getting crazier and crazier, and he just didn't know what to say. And he, he kept looking to the camera. Did you notice that, Brave? Kind of like, get me out of here. Okay. He he seemed to be hoping to be beamed out of there. He gave that look to the camera. Do you know what his look looked like? And this is going to be, have you ever seen, you know, a dog? And sometimes when they're pooping on the lawn, have you ever made eye contact with a dog who's pooping on the lawn, Rod? Yeah, my, 
it's the it's that look like why are you looking at me? I'm I'm just why are you looking at me poop? Like can you please look the other way? Right. There's something dogs have some advanced consciousness to feel what hey, hey, what's going on? But Sank had a look on that, but find that clip and find it on Jimmy Dore because Jimmy being amused by it was as good as the clip. He played it like three times, four times, five times. He couldn't get enough of it. It was like crack for Jimmy Dore. Let's go to a caller, Eric. 202 1320 Eric, you're on. Hi, how you doing? Um, yeah, I wanted to uh, expand on what Bray was talking about, you know, the pandering, the fake politics, uh, the the woke ideology. This is all really a form of right-wing populism, okay? And so what they have done is they want to look, they want to look uh, popular, like they care about everybody and like they look nice, but they're really just co-opting this, uh, all these movements in order to protect capitalism. And that's why it's right-wing populism. So that's all this is. And, you know, and the Democrats are the best ones at it. They, they are more adept than the Republicans at co-opting all of, all of these anti-establishment movements. Well, Eric, what aren't you in favor of in capitalism? Do you oppose market the market system? Do you oppose private property? When you're, I, I hear this is the same thing we talked about with Dimitri yesterday. You talking about they're trying to protect capitalism? Yes, because if by that you mean the market economy, even China has a market economy. Countries have seen that a, a all the commanding high economy. You know, it, it, it is not the same as the Chinese economy. Uh, and uh, listen, how is that market economy working out for us, uh, by the way, right now, Lee? <laughs> it's working out great. Do you live in a house? Do you have a phone? How are you calling me? How? Tell me how are you calling me? Do you live in a cave? Where do you live? In a cave? Are you naked? Are you starving? What, what's going on with you? Are you, do you? Do you? Lifespan, human lifespan used to be 30 years old. So ask how it's working when you th- hit your 31st birthday. I'm already 30, and it, it sucks. Everybody's got student loan debt. Nobody can afford a house. What are you talking about? The Chinese have 90% uh, home ownership. When was this period when everybody owned a house? The 1600s? When was this golden age that you're blaming on the market economy? The market economy is working out well for me and well for you. If you want to oppose crony capitalism, then oppose the government involvement in it. That's what you should. But if you people in, in, their, in their houses. So, you, you know, are you really going to tell me that uh, the Democrats uh, aren't, uh, you know, ruthless capitalists themselves? They're crony capitalists. They're not. They're ruthless. Yes, but they're crony capitalists. Joe Biden giving his son, son Hunter. What are you talking about the ability, the ability to make eighty thousand a month in Ukraine. That is not capitalism. That is not the market at play. That's the that's the most purest form of capitalism there is. Ripping people off. No, it's not. It it it, it depends. Market what you, you right? No, Eric, you set me up for because we had this discussion yesterday with Dmitry Babich, and actually, I'm going to ask Daniel Czar to say what he thinks the difference is. So let me. I'm not mad, Eric. By the way, it's just for radio. I need to spaz out sometimes. You understand that? But I'm a billionaire is rotting around in, in Chinese gulags right now. Maybe we should do that here. When what do you see as the difference between capitalism? And the market economy. 
Well, capitalism is the market economy. It's the it's the rule of the market. It's the enshrinement of uh, of survival of the fittest. Where does the government fit in? What do you mean? Where is in in the market economy? Government. In a, in, in a free market, what involvement does the government have? It looks like the government was letting that Purdue pharmaceutical family run off with all that money after they killed all those people with their uh, opium. Right, and in a functioning market economy. I would like to see the government lock lock up those people like the Chinese do. Maybe maybe that's where the government should be putting putting some uh, robber barons into uh, into jail. How about that one? But as soon as you give that power to the government, what happens is they pick and choose the robber barons. They pick. They say this guy who's our competitor, this guy's a robber baron, but this robber baron we like. Great call, Eric. Thanks for the call. When we come back. We'll be talking to Daniel Zarr about issues and the war and a great news piece he's got up at Weekly Worker. This is the backstory. Back in the back, Troy, 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Joining us now, great friend of the show, Daniel Zarr, who's got a great new piece over Weekly Worker that we'll talk about in a little bit. But, Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. So we had a good discussion yesterday with Dimitri Babich, and I wanted to run this by you because you're obviously a smart guy, and... So I want to get your perspective as someone who, you know, political labels are tough because what one person might mean by a political label, another person means something different. So some people, if they describe someone as right wing, they'd say they're a fascist and their definition of right wing is a fascist. But as you know, I think many Americans who call themselves right wing all they mean is a Republican. And it doesn't mean they're fascists, per se. They may not like Nazis. They may hate Nazis. And they may hate crony capitalism. But political labels are tricky because often we can't agree on what basic words mean from one person to another. So Dimitri talked about this yesterday. He made a distinction between capitalism and a market economy. Daniel, do you see that distinction? And do you see that as a valid distinction? Daniel, what's your take on that? The answer is I, I see the distinction on a certain theoretical level. On a practical level, I don't. I mean, theoretically, there's an ideal, uh, there's an ideal view of how capitalism should work in total freedom, you know, and, uh, and total freedom to invest, total freedom of contract, I mean, the, 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 the playing field is totally level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In reality, capitalism has never been that way. I mean, capitalism arose, uh, I guess, classically in the, in the 18th century with the Industrial Revolution in, uh, in Britain. Uh, and there was always very heavy government involvement. 
And even in creating that level playing field in, in Victorian England, if that's the, the ideal time, it took massive, as a paradox is, it took massive government intervention to create a level, a level playing field in which government would not intervene. Do you, does that make sense to you? In other words, in order to, in order to create this, this zone of free investment, government had to step in, clear away all the pre-capitalist rubble, and then stand guard while the capitalists went out to play in what was now a nicely level manicured field. Does that make sense to you? Oh, it makes some sense, but from, and can I ask you to speak directly into the phone because we're having trouble hearing you a little bit. It's breaking up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. But from what I know about the Victorian Edwardian period of England, I can tell you that people like the Rothschilds, big banking interests, and and were still in play. And there's nothing about the way they were doing business that is a free market. That was about giving, keeping royalty in power as the way, and that's how you got blatant racists like Cecil Rhodes. And when people talk about white supremacists, there's no question, Cecil Rhodes was avowedly a white supremacist. You agree with right. that, Daniel? Was, yes, of course, and you also had, you had India, which was a colony. You know, the whole of India was owned by little, little Britain. It made no sense at all. Vast tracts of, of, uh, of, of, of Africa were carved up by the European powers. So, so even if one harkens back to this, these, this glorious period in the late 19th century, where you know, where government, government regulations seemed to be fairly light, it still rested on massive, you know, imperial, imperial adventures. Central banks, you know, huge corporations, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and the Chinese Opium War is a good. To me, that's not an example of the market. That's where England didn't like the fact that China at the time had the biggest GDP in the world. They were the most successful economy in the world, and China made tea almost exclusively, and the British liked tea. So because they wanted to get tea, they ruined China's economy and didn't completely ruin it, but tried and killed a lot of people by introducing opium to China and then going up and down the river and blasting away at them. That to me is a government use of, that's a government operation. Would you yeah, agree with course. that on the, the opium course. more? Yeah. Of course. And again, it's a weird hybrid. I don't, I don't view that as a golden example of laissez-faire capitalism. It's far from laissez-faire, I think. But anyway, good so decision. Just, so, so what, well, so I, what was, was, was there ever a pure market economy? Well, I think you had closer to that in some cases in the US economy. I think the British have always been basically, it became the royalty became out of favor because people began to question the divine right of kings. And as people became more enlightened and educated, as the populace became that, 
the argument that, oh, well, he's king because God says, a lot of people begin to question that. And I would say the British have always tried to keep the royals in there, but some cases using the cover of modernity. But I want to talk about the article. You have a new article up at Weekly Worker, right? Where you're talking about, speaking of the British, how there seems to be coordination between the Biden administration, Joe Biden, Lloyd Austin, and then Liz Truss. And by the way, is Liz Truss an embarrassing government official for the UK? She's pretty embarrassing, yeah. I, I just mean, you know, unqualified in the same way that I would argue Nina Jankowicz is unqualified. It's not, there are qualified women. There are smart women. They didn't pick a couple of them there. So talk about what you wrote about, about the coordination between the Biden administration and Liz Truss and Bojo. What do you see is going on there, Daniel? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean neither, there are two sides in this war. There's, I mean, there, not counting the Ukraine itself, of course, but there's, there's NATO versus Russia. And neither side has an end game. I mean, what does Russia want to do? Does it want to conquer the whole of Ukraine? Does it want to subdue this hostile population of 44 million people? Does it want to apply an ideological test in which everybody who worships at the, the shrine of Stepan Banderas will spend five years in a Siberian labor camp, you know, you know, purging themselves of their ideological sins? Is that what Russia really wants? Because I don't think Russia has the capability of doing that. And what does, what does the U.S. want? I mean, does the U.S. want to liberate Crimea and liberate the Donbass? Those people don't want to be liberated. You know, the New York Times had an article yesterday where they admitted in the town of Kramatorsk that, uh, that the people there are pro-Russian. This is a, town, a major town in, uh, in the eastern Ukraine. The people there are hostile to the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian uh, government, and they're and they're they're favorable towards Russia. The Times itself was admitted this. So what does what does the U.S. want? Does it want to impose some kind of unhappy settlement on vast portions of the eastern Ukraine that are really pro-Russian? Does, does does America really want that? And does America America really want to empower this? expansive, major, intense, you know, Nazi, you know, element that is concentrated in the, uh, in the Western Ukraine, but is, you know, but is, you know, it has, ex is, has extensive influence throughout the Ukrainian military. Is that what America wants? You know, so, so, you know, so, so what do these people want? Anyway, so Joe Biden, he gave a speech in Warsaw, in late March, late late March, where he talked about, like you know, so he said, "God, that for God's sakes, this man has got to go with regard to Putin." So suddenly, the U.S. aid became regime change in the Kremlin. Then Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, a month later, gave a speech in which the aim is now to shrink Russia and to and to make it incapable of ever waging war again. 
And that was an echo of what uh, of what Big Brzezinski had written in 1997 in his best-selling book, The Grand Chessboard, in which he called for dividing Russia up into three parts under U.S. control, and the U.S. then sweeping through and conquering Central Asia as part of the grand march on China. I mean, this completely mad scheme. You know, this the scheme for man, you know, for for global conquest. You know, you, you expect to find Big Brzezinski in an insane asylum. You know, wearing a in, in a Napoleon costume. You know, strutting around and and replaying the battle Battle of Waterloo, and um. And then Liz Truss, who was this complete dimwit, um, who was nonetheless a leading candidate to replace Boris Johnson. And she comes from, by the way, a, a liberal left household. In fact, her father, when, when she ran for parliament as a Tory, her father refused to support her. Um, and so anyway, so so Liz Truss gave this ridiculous speech in which she called for, you know, for – the, for NATO to establish world domination and to, you know, to put China in line and, you know, and just bring the entire world to heel. And it's just so, so utterly bonkers because it's completely at odds with the reality of U.S. power, which is not doing very well in the Ukraine. And if people care to ignore the propaganda in the, in the, in the daily press and look at the real situation there. Um, so it's just it's just these three losers, you know, going on on this increasingly unrealistic policy. The end result of which will be disaster. Anyway, that's what the article said. No, and and you make a good point. And, and another point you that you brought up there on the side is related to what we were talking about before. Someone uh, we've been talking about on the show. How do you account for the fact that? The Democrats unanimously voted for it last night. Is it fair to say the Democratic Party is a war party? Hands down. The fact that the squad voted, there's no opposition. Yes, that is the that that I think is the great change of the last 25 years. Because uh, you and I are old enough to remember when they, the Democrats were the Dove Party, um, especially you know after Vietnam. And uh, the anti-war movement of the 60s came out of the Democratic Party, essentially. Um, and, uh, uh, and even as late as 1991, on the eve of the Persian Gulf War, a majority of Democrats voted against the war in both the House and Senate. So the Republicans were solidly for the war. The Democrats, actually, majority of them voted against it. Um, but that has never happened again. And now we see a reversal where the Democrats are solidly for war and the Republicans, if anything, are somewhat less enthusiastic. No, you got 57 votes by Republicans against this bill and against this billions of dollars and effectively against the war. And if they were talking about putting actual troops on the ground, I think you'd have a lot more. And I don't think you'd have any Democrats. Do you think if Joe Biden said tomorrow, we're going to put troops on the ground, anyone in the Democratic Party, including a squad, would stand up against that? Yeah, I think they would. <laughs> I mean, it's not that it's not that bad. I mean, the, <laughs> the idea of Americans going to war on the steps of Russia. I mean, anybody who has ever read a, a single history book. You know about World War II 
will understand the absolute total, you know, frothing at the mouth badness of that idea. And even even the, the and 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 the and the, and the truth might even penetrate through the thick skulls of the Democrats. I think you're demonstrating uh, a good degree of hope there, but maybe right. And you'd have to admit you don't have uh, someone. You go well. This this person would clearly vote against that. You you couldn't be shocked if no one came out against it. You you might hope. And I would hope that troops on the ground would get a couple of Democrats opposed to it. But right. I'm not seeing any proof of that. And so far, no, I quite agree. Yeah, and I think the Democrats have been very good at enforcing discipline, which is the way they put it. Uh, they get unanimity among Democrats. And the, the the Republicans, at least there's some room to move. You could be a Republican against the war and you wouldn't be kicked out of the party. But I don't think you could be a Democrat fervently against this war and be in the Democrat Party. They would take you out. Do you agree? Against this war now? Definitely yes. Uh, definitely yes. Uh, because, uh, I mean, there's this total, there's total censorship. There's total mind control. Uh, I mean, it's the, uh, it's the worst I've seen it, uh, since the immediate, immediate aftermath of 2001 of the, uh, of 9-11. I mean, uh, it's, it's completely nuts and no one dares, no one dares breathe a, a, a word of fundamental criticism against the war. Now, I think one of the reasons the Democrats like having a squad, they see it as a thin veneer of radicalism or real leftism in – but it's, it's an illusion. I think they think they'll get youth votes if they have people like the squad on their side. Do you think they're pandering for youth votes? Well, I, I I think the I think I'd put it a little differently. I think that therefore, um, no one will no one on the left no one on the left will oppose them as long as they have the squad on the, on their side. And by the way, Bernie Sanders as well, he's gung ho for the war too. So all yes. those millions of young people who uh who to to you know marched uh, marched out in support of Bernie Sanders, I mean they have nowhere to go. Now, meanwhile, are you following the, the situation war. in the Middle East? With the Al Jazeera reporter who was killed, sure. And and that's interesting because it sure seems like Israel killed an Al Jazeera reporter. Israel is backed up. They initially said no, it was a Palestinian who killed her, but they're backed off that position. And the Biden is acting. The Biden administration is acting like they're going to look into it and get to the truth. Do you see Israel? is now not denying it, basically admitting it. And how, what sort of positions does that put the Democrats in? Uh, the, the, the Democrats won't, won't say a word. I mean, I mean, except maybe one or two, uh, you know, in the squad might, might utter a peep. But, um, 
you know, when the, when the, when the, when the Israelis killed this, this 81 year old Palestinian American man, they, you know, they, 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 they roughed him up so badly that he died. Um, and, uh, and you know, and there were the, the, there was a, a few strong words were uttered in uh, in Washington, but then it was hushed up. You know, the funny thing about Palestine, about the, the occupied territories, is that a lot of those people, a lot of people there, uh, have spent time in the U.S. I mean, if you go to the uh, you go to the West Bank, you'll, you'll constantly run you know run across people who you know who used to own you know laundromats and 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 Bridgeport, Connecticut. And they and they they love the United States. They just can't understand why the why the U.S. government is so completely and totally hostile. Right, and and I think the the only people you see say anything about the Palestinian issue occasionally is the people on the squad. But I would say is without any oomph behind it. In other words, they say something, but they're not actually looking for a solution. That would work. That say something when something the Israel's Israelis do something horrible, like kill an Al Jazeera reporter. But it's lip service. Do you agree that the squad yeah. pays lip service to Palestine, yeah. but not? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Daniel. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But they, but the, but the problem is that there is no easy solution. I mean, I mean, you have two you have two nations. First of all. Jews are actually a minority in greater Israel, believe it or not. They actually have slipped below the, the 50% barrier and greater Israel being including Gaza and the West Bank. So you have a, you have, have a minority that is, that is you know, exerting its power over, uh, over the rest of the population. And that's, that's completely untenable. I mean, that, that, you know, how long can that go on? 10 years, 20 years? The, the, the more the Jewish portion of the population shrinks and all the demographic indicators say it will, um, the more absolutely untenable that grows. But you have two peoples who are interpenetrated, as we say. They, you know, they sort of occupy the same land. Uh, they, they hate one another. Uh, and they're, and they're uh, at least in the part of Hamas and, uh, and, and Israel, they have uh, – they're led by forces that are essentially committed to the other's destruction. So, so what can you do? Well, the, this brings up the concept of self-determination. And the Democrats sometimes pay lip service to that. But as demonstrated by Ukraine, if they believe in self-determination – they would be fine with what happened in Crimea because the people clearly wanted to be with Russia. But what's happened once was, do I remember incorrectly or was self-determination once an important principle for the Democrats at one point? Well, it was the backbone of, uh, of, of Woodrow Wilson's uh, plan, you know, at Versailles, but it actually, it actually led to a horror show because, um, Every time you had you had self determination for one people, you'd have crushing oppression for the other. So you know, so so Wilson created all these new states out of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and elsewhere, the Tsarist Empire as well, and uh, and they all had their dominant ethnicities and they all had their minorities, who were you know who were who were beaten down and oppressed. And of course, 
and the most oppressed minority was the Jews. You know, and everyone else, you know, agreed. You know, that they, you know, everyone else agreed in hating the Jews. So it was completely explosive, and 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 it was explosive during the good times of the twenties, and then when the bad times arrived in the thirties, it turned volcanic. So each of those each of those societies was ready to, ready to explode. And finally, beginning in nineteen thirty eight thirty nine, they did explode. No, but but in in places. I think Putin, we talked about this yesterday with Dmitry Babich. Putin seems to believe in self-determination. For instance, I don't think he wants to have the government of Cuba in Russia, but he's not trying to stop Cuba from having a government. And same same with Syria. I don't think he's in favor of the, he wouldn't want exactly the same government that Assad has in Russia. And he wants, I think, and same thing with Donbass and all kinds of regions. I'd say Putin is a better example. And there are obviously some problems that can come with self-determination. But do you see Putin as defending that basic idea, non-interventionism, some Republicans might call it? Oh, he's, yeah, but he's, he's as inconsistent as everybody else's. And because because no one really believes in self-determination. First of all, no one is able to define the self in self-determination. I mean, what does self-determination mean? You know, does, does Brooklyn have self self-determination? Uh, do the under uh, the Orthodox Jews in Williamsburg have self-determination? Uh, do the black people in uh, other parts of Brooklyn have self-determination? Um, and you know, and 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 Russia, the Russian Federation, is composed of. Literally, uh, 200 uh, ethnic groups slash nations. Uh, the largest, of course, being the Russians themselves. But do, do all those groups have self-determination? I mean, if it's true, Russia would break up into a, a hundred different pieces, and each one of those pieces would be at each other each other, you know, nation's throat. So, uh, so I mean, so no, it's one of those. It's an empty phrase. No one talks about it because they, everyone pays lip service to it, but no one really talks about it. Now, what do you think this means long term? Do you think it'll be election consequences for Democrats becoming a party of war? I just think they are. Boy, I just think they are facing a wipeout in uh, in November. I mean, a a 1932 wipeout style wipeout. I mean, they are. I mean, they've got everything against them. Uh, the economy. Uh, they've got this, you know, this crazy, you know, this 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 crazy, you know, uh, feminist transgender radicalism, uh, which turns off like you know ninety nine point eight percent of the of the of the country. Uh, they have um, they have the war, which is only going to grow more and more unpopular. Especially as the news about the uh, about the Nazis fighting on the U.S. side uh, filters out, um, and then they got Biden himself, and, and and Biden is clearly this guy is clearly incompetent. I mean, he's like having a crazy old uncle running the uh, running the country. You might be you might be you might be you might be quite fond of your crazy old uncle, but you don't want him, you don't even want him driving a car, much less determining a national policy. And do you think that's accelerated with Biden? Because I think in the last few months, it seems to be happening, the the aging thing that we've all seen. I've noticed it more and more. 
Have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. The, the change in Biden over – first of all, over a period of four or five years is dramatic. You can go back and look at clips from him from the uh, just five years ago, and he's, he's a different man. Uh, and and uh, and I think the process is, is accelerating. I mean, he, he remember he did have brain surgery around the year two thousand for a brain aneurysm. Um, and it, while it's very difficult to trace uh, surgery like that to his present condition, uh, one thing we know is that when you mess around with the brain, um, it doesn't usually turn out very well in the end. Um, and so, uh, so he, um, he, you know, he's uh, clearly his mind is slipping. He's rigid. He's not processing information. Uh, he he's incapable of of seeing nuance, contradiction, irony, etc. Um, and so he's uh, he's pursuing. Uh, he's 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 bullheaded, uh, and he's pursuing this effort in a very bullheaded way, and that you don't want to do. And Daniel, great conversation. We're out of time now. Tell people again, remind them where they can find your new article. Uh, it's at the, the weeklyworker.co.uk. Daniel Zarr, great conversation. Thanks to Mill Shan last hour. And thanks to everyone who called in. We'll be back in the backstory tomorrow. 